Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Romans 1, uh, not whatever is on the bulletin because uh, we kind of had to change some stuff up this week. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be at. We're going to look at a couple verses, verses 16 and 17. If you have uh, the app on your phone, the Uversion app, there is a live event you can follow along with us. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be at, and we're starting a series called Unashamed. Unashamed in our worship, unashamed in our witness. And as I have been thinking about how to start off this series, um, kind of in the back as we were singing, um, the word unashamed just kept coming into my mind. I was going to tell a story about how my daughter, when we take off all her clothes before she takes a shower or anything, she loves to do this little naked dance and how that's unashamed. I thought, it's a little weird. Um, but, but I do understand that the word in the middle, that shame word, is something that carries significant weight on people. And uh, I began to think about what are some of the reasons why people would carry around a weight of shame and how heavy that weight can be for so many, how it will cause individuals to not be able to look you in the eye, how shame um, splits families and breaks friendships, how shame could just completely change the demeanor of a person. Um, and, and if we are called to live lives that are unashamed, what, what was, what's the difference? And I began to realize that there's a significant difference um, between shame and living unashamed, obviously. But what is that difference? And, and one of the differences that I begin to process and I want to think about today is this, the biggest difference is is I, is me, right? Like, I carry the weight of shame. God does not shame. I need you to understand that. Because so many of us, we're walking around with a significant weight on our shoulders. It's 2020, new year, new me, right? Like, already there's weight. And shame is not from God. Shame is not from God. Shame is centered around um, this concept that God is not as big as you thought he was and you are way bigger in your mind than you actually are. And when you live a life like that, it's easy to walk around in shame because you let God down. But what I hope to do today, what I would hope to look at um, in, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome is this picture of uh, a God that is way bigger than we could have ever expected, and a picture of ourselves that is significantly smaller than we probably imagine. And when we begin to have those in proper alignment, shame goes away, and we can live a life that is unashamed. And unashamed of what, though? Unashamed of what? Let's look at Romans 1.16. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That's a really brilliant, I wish we could process that a little bit more, but from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness, righteous shall live by faith. So this, this concept um, of uh, us not being living life that is unashamed is kind of wrapped up in this picture of a God that is not big enough, a small God and a big me. And so it's first Sunday and there's kids in here. And so what I want us to do today is I'm going to give us collectively four questions that we can ask ourselves that I that I believe that if we ask these and answer these questions appropriately, um, ask and answer these questions based on what the Bible says to be true, then our picture of God will be much larger than it is and our picture of ourselves will be much smaller than we imagine. And we will have proper alignment and then we can live lives that are unashamed. All right? So the first thing is our view of God is too small. Our view of God is much too small. And the first question I want you to think about in light of that is who is God? So if you're taking notes, write down who is God. If you're a little, if, if you're not an adult, that's fine. You can still write who is God. It's three words. There's not that many letters. Write down who is God. That's your first question to ask yourself. Who is God? So think about that. Who, how would you answer that question? Some, some of you, it's 2020, beginning of the year, you started a Bible reading plan. Good for you. I'm proud of you. I have started a new reading plan as well. Typically, reading plans start in Genesis, right? Who is God? Genesis chapter one, his creator. He's creative of all things. He, he speaks everything into existence. And if we begin to think about that a little bit more, um, we, can, we can become overwhelmed by that. But oftentimes we're like, yeah, God created everything. Cool, that's awesome. Let's keep moving on. But like, let's, let's sit here for a second. So yes, he created the heavens and the earth. Yes, he created um, the animals. He separates water from land and sky. Like all of these things are significant. They're significant. He created the macro, but he also created the micro, he created every little proton and neutron that created the sand and the trees. He sets the stars in their places. He created gravity. He created color. He does all of this by speaking. The God of the universe, there was nothing except for God, and he speaks, and it comes into existence. This is who God is. 
For us to properly have a picture of God, we need to remember who he is. He's creator. He's created all things. Um, another thing that I begin to think of is, is found in the book of Colossians. It speaks of, um, it speaks of Jesus, um, and, and it says this. He is, uh, this is Colossians 1.15, it's not in the app or you can, you can follow along or you can listen. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, right? This is what we just talked about. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things are held together. So who is God? He's creator, but he is also sustainer. He is holding everything together. This is God. If he ceased to be God for one microsecond, gravity no longer exists. If gravity no longer exists, chaos ensues, does it not? Oxygen is no longer available. He is holding the creation that he made all together, and he is holding this, and he is sustaining this together. He creates all. He sustains all. And one beautiful picture that I love to think about um, in um, Ephesians is that he redeems all. That yes, he created Genesis 1, we ruined Genesis 3, right? Sin enters into the world, now death enters into the world, and there's a fracture between us and God. But he does not just leave us there that he is redeeming everything according to the, this is what it says, in him we have attained inheritance and being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That he is taking all the things that we mess up on the regular, right? As we put more and more sin into his creation, he's redeeming it. He creates, he sustains, he redeems. There's millions and millions of more things that we could say about who God is. And we ought to do that. That's why we want to sing songs about who God is. That's why when we open up our Bibles, we need to think about what does this say about who God is? Because the bigger picture that we have of God, the more we can live lives that are truly unashamed. And so one of the things uh, that we, uh, the, the second question that I want us to think about today is who is God? And then the qu second question is what has he done or what is he doing? So what has God done or even what is he doing? And, the, and this is what we need to understand. Old Testament, the narrative of the Old Testament, there is this cycle uh, that happens over and over and over. The cycle looks something like this. Um, 
God's people are serving the Lord. They're surrendered to him. It is good, right? Sin enters into the picture and idolatry ensues soon after that. After sin and idolatry comes enslavement. And then God's people cry out for deliverance. God hears their cry and he sends someone to deliver them. God's people are delivered. They begin to worship him again. And they begin to live and serve the Lord. And then it happens all again, over and over and over. If you read the New Testament, what you will see is this pattern. Serving the Lord, sin and idolatry, enslavement, a cry for deliverance. God sends a deliverer. The people are delivered, and they go back to serving the Lord. And quickly after, sometimes days, sometimes minutes, sometimes years, sin, enslavement, cry for deliverance. And the beautiful thing about who God is and what God is doing is in the Old Testament, we saw God send men to deliver God's people. And what we now see as New Testament people is those men never had the ability to fully deliver God's people from everything. And that is why they landed themselves back into this idolatrous state, back into enslavement. But we have the New Testament. What has God done as he has sent not only someone to deliver us, he has sent us the Deliverer, capital D. So what has God done? I want us to think about a couple things. This, you can answer this a million different ways, but for the purpose of today, I want us to think about how Paul was thinking about living unashamed in chapter one of Romans. He feels right above that in, in verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation. I am indebted to share with you this message. Why? Because he understands this, that Jesus came. The deliverer came, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came because he knew that we could never get to him, that there was a chasm between us and God that could never be, be uh, fixed because of the sin that we have committed. And so Jesus came. He left the heavens and he came to the earth the broken world who was born in a stable and he lived a very common life. He came. What has God done? He has come for us. He has sent a deliverer. God with us. What has he done? Jesus died. He didn't just die a common death. He died a sacrificial death. God for us. He took our place. The judgment that was coming for us, he took on the cross. So God is with us. 
And God is for us. He came, he died, but that is not it. Three days later, they go to the tomb and it is empty. God is victorious. Sin enters in the world, Genesis chapter 3. The curse is death. I was reading today uh, in Genesis chapter 5 because it's the fifth day of the year and that's where your Bible plan is for most of you probably. One of the things that stuck out on me in this genealogy from the generations of Adam is every stanza ends with, and he died. That's significant. When the Bible repeats itself often, it's probably significant. Why does the Bible tell us that they died? Because that is part of the curse that happened. That is part of the adversary that no one can defeat, death. But he sends the deliverer that defeats our sin as a sacrifice on the cross and he defeats our death as he is resurrected on Sunday. What has he done? And he is victorious. He is with us. He is for us. He is in our place. He is victorious. This is the God that we sing about. This is the God that we read about. But that is not it. What has he done? He uh, spends time with his disciples, with his followers. And in Matthew 28, it tells us that he gathers with the disciples. His last words go something like this in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is not only victorious, he, don't, he not only beats sin and death, but he reigns. He rules. We serve a God who created, who sustains, who redeems. He came for us, he died for us, he rose for us, and he rules for us. Our view of God is much too small. And until we begin to see God for who he is, that is much larger than we could ever imagine, we can never truly live lives that are unashamed. Because our view of God is much too small. But also, our view of ourselves is much too big. Our view of ourselves is much too big. And this comes the third question. Who am I in light of God's work? Or the short, short version is who am I? But I think that question is flawed when we just ask it as who am I? Because who am I is um, placing I in the center and you know what else I is in the center of? Sin. It rests dead in the center of sin. 
right? Go back to Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden. Don't eat of the tree. They look at the tree and they begin to doubt God. Is he keeping something from me? Is he not giving me everything that I deserve or am entitled to? We've never said something like that, right? I is wrapped up in the center of every single sin that's committed in the history of the world. So asking the question simply, who am I, is not enough. Who am I in light of God's work? So I want to throw this graphic up here because I think this will be helpful for all of us as we recount who we are because of what because of what Christ has done for us. So if you're a note taker, write this down because I think this will be helpful when you think about the question, who am I? You can fill in the blanks. I was what? I was blank, but now I am blank. That's not the end of the sentence. Because of Christ. I was blank, but now I am blank because of Christ. Here's some. Luke 15 Jesus tells stories, um, three stories that have a similar pattern. Something was lost and now it is found. I, as we recount this, right, I was lost, but now I am found because of Christ. Not because of me. The stories in Luke 15 don't point to uh, the item finding anything, but it, it, it talks about uh, God in hot pursuit of his own creation. I was lost, but now I'm found. How about this? Romans chapter 6. I was a slave, but now I am free. What does he talk about? I was a slave to the law, trying to obey all of these different things that I've placed on top of the gospel. I've placed all of these duties on top of what Jesus has done for me, and I've become enslaved to that. But in Christ, we are free. He also talks about being enslaved to sin, that we get so wrapped up in I and choosing I over God that we become enslaved to these things. We become addicts to these things, and we cannot function without getting our fix. And what Jesus has done for us because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because we have victory over sin and death, we are now free. We recount these things, and what it does is it paints a, a bigger and bigger picture of God and a smaller and smaller picture of who we are. And when we live those kinds of lives, we're not full of shame, but we live lives that are truly unashamed. Here's a couple more. Ephesians chapter 2, I was born a child of wrath, but but now I'm a child of God because of Christ. Fill in yours. Philippians 4, I was living in fear, but now I can live in peace because of Christ. I was defeated, 
Romans chapter 8, now I am more than a conqueror because of Christ. We can't leave him out of it because he is the whole reason we can make these declarations. I was broken, but now I'm made new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because of Christ. When I sin, when I sin, I go back to living a was kind of life. We take, but now I am blank because of Christ. And we let go of it. And we begin to live a was kind of life. When we pick the I in sin. So comes the fourth question. So, Who am I in light of God's work? And the fourth question is, how should I live? How should I live in light of all of these other things, right? How should I live in light of who I am in Christ? The first thing that we ought to do is constantly be killing off the I in sin. Constantly living a because of Christ kind of life, not a was kind of life. We do this by simply asking ourselves these questions. We, we, uh, be, we remember the gospel. This is, what, this is what Paul says right here. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Because it has nothing to do with him. It is the power of God for salvation for every single person he comes in contact with. So there's no I in that. It is a a because of Christ kind of life. It is a big God, small me kind of life. When we remember that, we put all of these things in proper perspective and we can live unashamed. But we have to do more than just remember because we are bad rememberers. We have to remember it and then we have to recite it. We have to recite it over and over and over. We need to tell it to ourselves. We need to tell it to our kids. We need to tell it to our grandkids. We tell it to our friends. Tell it to our neighbors. We need to recite these things because it helps us be better rememberers when we're reciting it. I am... um, doling out a lot of things for us to do this new year. I want you to do a little bit of homework this week. I work with teenagers, so that's what we do, right? Um, Homework this week. I would like for you to write down the gospel. Write down what you think the gospel is. And then after you do that, I want you to begin to ask yourself some questions. Have I added to the gospel? Have I placed things upon the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that ought not be there, that are made of man, not of God? Have I taken away things from the gospel that ought not be there or ought to be there? What is the gospel? Big God, small me. A was gospel is a big me and a very small God. A because of Christ's gospel leans completely on the completed work of Jesus, not on anything that we might do. So we remember it, we recite it, and then we respond to the gospel daily. Moment by moment, responding to a life because of Christ. God is bigger than we could ever imagine, and we are way smaller than we realize. When we understand the gospel, the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and then the Greek. When we understand that, our worship is properly aligned. And we begin to live a life that is unashamed. The gospel rests completed on the completed work of Jesus, not anything that we have to do. And so the first Sunday of every month, we Remember, respond, we remember, we recite, and we respond to the gospel by taking communion. The gospel reminds us that there's nothing for us to do but surrender our lives to Jesus, who holds all things together. So often, we find ourselves busy, find ourselves distracted, and unfortunately attempt to run our lives or become God of our lives. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples that night before he was crucified, he says, do this and remember me. Remember the completed work that you are about to experience and see. He he takes a a piece of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you, a punishment that you could never bear. The full wrath of God is unleashed on the body of Jesus, a punishment, a brokenness that you could never experience. He experiences for us. When we take the body, that is what we remember. And he passes around the cup. He says, this is my blood shed for your sins, a sacrifice that we have not the ability to make. But God with us, God for us, God victorious, and God reigns. That sacrifice is enough to wash away all of the sins.
So this is what we do when we take communion. There's tables set up around the room. The table is open for anyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray, and the, the worship team's going to come back up here and, and lead us in a few songs. And what I would ask you to do is search your heart. Don't be in a hurry. Search your heart and ask God to help you to live a am now kind of life because of Christ. Confess your sins to the Lord now and come and remember that he takes your sin and he put it on himself. Remember there is gluten-free communion in the back. Let me pray for us and then we will worship. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, um, for this word. Thank you so much for the gospel. As we sit here, even in this moment, Lord, help us to recount these four questions. Who is God? Who is God to me? What has he done? Who am I in light of God's work? And what, how should I then live? Or paint a picture of a massive, massive God for us. And a very finite me. And as we come to your table, help us to taste and see that you are good. Thank you for your body broken and for your blood shed. Help us to remember today. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.